Well, last hour, I gave you a little bit of an introduction to the course, and we ended the hour looking at the approach of the course, and I gave you those four elements that we'll emphasize throughout the course. We'll look at those ten events, and we'll look at them exegetically, or in other words, uh, see what the Bible says about those events. We'll look at, thirdly, we'll look at the implications of those events, and then fourthly, we will defend them as real historical events, or if there's other issues that we need to defend, we will get into an apologetic discussion. So we'll have those elements. World history, exegesis, theology, apologetics. Four reasons. They're all on your outline sheet there. Well, one of the things that Charlie Clough does is he explains where this approach came from. In other words, why is it important to kind of look at these major events and what he noticed as he looked at scriptures, and one of the first ones we'll look at. In fact, why don't you turn to Luke twenty-four twenty-seven? I don't remember if Charlie uses that one or not, but at least he uses this idea. He was noticing that uh, in some cases in scripture when people, for example, in the book of Acts or even in the Old Testament, people continually are referring to these major events. In other words, these are milestones that are kind of the basis of everything else. And notice what Jesus says in chapter 24. Would somebody, and why don't, do you mind starting off reading, Mackenzie? Why don't you read verse 27? Let me give you the context, and then I'll have you read that verse. This is after Jesus was crucified. And after he was crucified, the Gospels record several incidents where Jesus appeared to different, primarily disciples, including women. In fact, the first ones he appeared to were women, which is interesting. Tells us a lot. We won't get into that detail, but anyway. So that's kind of the occasion. This is one of those examples where Jesus appears to two individuals. They're called the Travelers on the Road to Emmaus. So that just gives you the kind of the historical context, geographical context. So they're walking along in bright sunlight in the daytime, and it appears that they they talked and walked for many miles or, or many hours, maybe. And they didn't recognize him. He just appeared like a man. Now, this is the resurrected Jesus. And this tells us something about uh, resurrection bodies as well and perhaps may give us some hints as to what a resurrection body may be like for you and I. But anyway, that's another thing as well. So the context is, here's these two travelers, and Jesus manifests himself, or he appears to them like an ordinary human being. He doesn't look resurrected at all. And they walk, and they're surprised that he hadn't heard about the main thing that was going on in that day, the crucifixion of what the Jews were calling the Messiah. And the disappointment, and these guys are just totally distraught and discouraged because of that. But it's not until they go and they invite him into the home. So in that culture, the home would have been very dark. It didn't have bright lights like we have today. It would be lit by oil lamps. 
And if a room only had one oil lamp, then most of the light would be confined to that one location. So here, in an obscure, darkened room, it's there that Jesus reveals himself. And now they begin to see who he is. So, first of all, the context is this is a resurrection appearance. And now he's going to begin to explain some of the events that they are wondering about. And that leads us to verse 27. You want to read that and read it loud? Moses and all the prophets and all the scriptures. Okay, notice that. Do you notice a couple of things there? What does Jesus do? This is after their eyes were opened and now they recognize, oh, this is, this is the Messiah. This is the resurrected Jesus. And now he's going to explain and he's going to interpret concerning who he is. And where does he start? Moses. Moses in the Jewish culture, Jewish mind, basically laid out the foundations to all things. It would include Genesis, it would include Deuteronomy, and the other three books of the the law. Leviticus, Numbers, Exodus. So he begins with Moses, probably beginning with Genesis. It doesn't tell us where he began, but somewhere in there, Jesus is beginning to expound. In other words, these passages refer to me, Jesus is saying. So what else does he say in that passage? Beginning with Moses, and then what? Well, first of all, all the prophets. That's basically the end. So from the beginning, probably beginning with Genesis, all the way through probably Malachi. Now, obviously, in this short period of time, he didn't read the whole Old Testament, but he probably brought out the main events or the main passages that referred to him as the Messiah. You see that there? So Jesus himself, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all of the scriptures. And what he's basically saying is all of the scriptures beginning with Moses, Genesis, And going through all of the Old Testament, all of the prophets, and what he's really giving them is an Old Testament Christology, or an explanation concerning the significance of these passages in relationship to the Christ, or the Messiah, in relationship to himself. And now they have a perspective in terms of what had happened in terms of the crucifixion. He probably included Isaiah 53, that the Messiah had to die. He probably included Isaiah 11, where the the Messiah will come and is going to restore all things. He probably gave them a perspective on world history, taking probably major events from the Old Testament to explain who he is. Now, turn to Acts chapter 7, totally different context. And in Acts chapter 7, the main character there is Stephen. And let's take a look at a few verses in that context. Let's start first with verse 1 to get the context there. Holland, do you want to read next? Just verse 1? Yeah, just verse 1, first of all. Okay. And the high priest said, are these things so? And he's speaking, read verse 2 as well. Okay. And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, here, the God of me appeared to our father Abraham. Okay. Okay, good. He's asking, are these things so, concerning things, issues of Stephen, 
And basically, Stephen is being accused by Jewish authorities. He's giving an, what? Apologia. He's giving a defense. Doesn't use the word necessarily, but now he's going to give a defense and notice what he does. He starts with what? Abraham. In other words, he's starting with the most significant beginning of the nation of Israel. Abraham and all of the events associated with Abraham. Very important. We're going to devote some time to Abraham and events surrounding Abraham. See that? So he begins with Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. Now, he doesn't give a lot of detail concerning these individuals, but if we read through verse 8, this kind of gives more detail concerning Abraham. Now, somebody read uh, verse 8. Linda, do you want to pick up there? Okay. Okay. Very, very important there. What's the first thing that you have there that is very, very important? And we're going to stress this. The Abrahamic Covenant. Now, if you've never heard of the Abrahamic Covenant, we're going to look at some detail concerning that. That, the Abrahamic Covenant, I'm going to try to convince you, that is one of the most important elements of world history. In fact, all of world history from this time in history is basically the working out of the Abrahamic Covenant. God is directing all of the nations, and particularly he's using the nation of Israel in order to accomplish what he has promised in the Abrahamic Covenant. And I'm going to try and demonstrate that the Abrahamic Covenant basically sets all of the parameters of world history after it. We'll show you that. And in fact, the Abrahamic Covenant has not yet been totally fulfilled. So there's even future aspects of the covenant that still need to be worked out so we know where world history is heading. The Abrahamic Covenant lays all that out. But the point I'm making here, this is important, Stephen identifies it. So what he deals with is Abraham and the covenant. Now, I'm not going to go through all of this, but let's look at a couple of others to continue to get uh, a little bit of the feel here. Somebody read verse 17. Marcy? But as the time of the promise was which God had assured, priests and multiplied. Okay, in Egypt, and if you keep reading in the text, what it's going to do, it's going to give the experience in Egypt in a very short summary form, and the Exodus. Now, Stephen is using these historical events to eventually, he's going to put it together and explain and defend, basically, his belief in Jesus Christ as Messiah. But these events are events that lead up to it. And, again, he's using the major events of the Old Testament. Mars? He's paraphrasing, but he's fine that he's paraphrasing. He's summarizing. Right. Very good. Good point. They would they would know the story. They would know the details, so all he has to do is remind them in some reform. Very good observation there. So he's dealing with the Egypt experience and the Exodus. One of the most important events of world history is this Exodus. It is certainly one of the most important events of Jewish history, but I'm going to try to demonstrate that it is one of the most important events of all of world history. 
In fact, all of these events, I've challenged you already, I'll keep reminding you, each one of these is more important than any other event of world history. I challenge you to find one that is more important than these that we will look at. So here's Stephen. Now let's skip down. And Randy, do you want to read verse 36? Okay, that's the Exodus. And then what? Keep reading. This is that one. Keep reading. This is he. Okay, the oracles. What's he talking about there? What? Another major covenant. And we'll look at what Linda's describing as the Sinaitic covenant or the Mosaic covenant or the law. We'll talk about that. That is significant. The giving of the law is another very, very important event, if you will. And also the wilderness experience as well. That, now, that's primarily important in terms of Israel, but what happened at Sinai is, is very important. In fact, the foundation for all of culture basically is encapsulated in what took place at Sinai. And if you keep reading, it just describes a little bit more. Chapter 7, verse 45. Lana, can you read that back there? You don't have a Bible? Okay, no problem. You want to do it? How? Go ahead. Our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua and they dispossessed the things that God drew about before our fathers. So it was until... Okay, there's two events there, or two clusters of events. What's the first one in that passage, verse 45? Another major event. The what? Conquest. Very good. Very significant, the conquest. There's a lot of theological implications that we'll draw from that that have very, very significance in terms of world history. Another major event there. And by the way, we're going to look at all of these. This is where Charlie Clough began to put together and think, these events seem to reoccur in Scripture, and you see some of these described in other passages in the Old Testament after these events. They refer back to these events. And these are just examples I'm giving you from the New Testament, that these are very significant events, kind of milestones, if you will. So we have the conquest, and then we have the kingdom. Now that's a cluster, and that's a whole period, but we're going to look at the, the kingdom as well. That's also in verse 45. And you can read the rest of chapter 7. Now, he's going to use this as his defense leading up to the Messiah. Okay? These are events that are foundational to the coming of Messiah. So that's Stephen in Acts chapter 7. And we could look at more detail there, but that gives you a feel for why these events are important. Now, Paul, in Acts chapter 13, does something similar. And you might turn to Acts chapter 13. And Mackenzie, do you want to start us off? Uh, look at verse 17. 13, 17. The God of his people of Israel, and with uplifted arm... Okay, there's two things, two significant events there. What's the first one? Key word there. What's the key word there? Our what? Our fathers. Who does that start with? Our fathers. Starts with Abraham again. Now, he uses fathers. It would include Isaac and Jacob. But it's referring again to the beginning of the nation. Our fathers. What's the other significant event there? Again, we have Egypt and the Exodus. Led out of Egypt. So we're going to look at those. 
18. Linda, you want you to take that one? For a period without Okay, obviously, what's that? Wilderness experience. 19, Marcy. He had destroyed Sebenin. He distributed land as an inheritance, all of which took about 400 years. Okay, what's that? Conquest. Conquest. See the, it's, see the repeating theme here? 22, Randy, you want to read that one? Skip down to 22. Uh, he mentions the judges in verse 20. Okay. And 21, why don't you go back, backtrack, read 21. And afterward, desired. Okay. The kingdom. See these recurring themes, recurring events, or clusters of events? And verse 23, you, you don't have any glasses, so we'll come back. Holland, you want to read uh, 1323? Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Italy as he Okay, and who is that? This is the fulfillment, to some extent, of the Abrahamic covenant. In fact, a fulfillment of a lot of prophecy is the coming of Messiah. And, and this is where this discussion is leading. And Paul now is going to explain concerning Messiah and the significance of, the theological significance of Messiah. He's the Savior. Men need to trust in Him. But the point I'm making here, you, you might notice that we have references to these major events that recur in Scripture, and here's just three examples. And from that, that kind of serves as a basis for looking at these events in some detail because of there's some very significant things involved in these events. And that's what we will do in this course. So that's a basis. Let's spend some time now. This kind of justifies taking these particular ten events because these particular events do recur over and over. Some of them more than others, but all of them are very, very significant. I didn't include creation and the Genesis flood because they weren't in these passages, but there's other passages elsewhere that continually refer to some of those. Jesus himself. In fact, when he's asked a question concerning marriage, where does he go for the foundation for marriage? Adam and Eve. He was asked a question about divorce, and he says it was not so from the beginning, and then he talks about the beginning with basically the first couple. But let's take a look at this whole idea of worldviews. I've been referring to it and mentioning it, so let me give you a little bit of a basis to understand what they are and why they're important, and also I'll give you some of the major elements of a worldview so that you can begin to evaluate the thinking of others using some simple parameters, some very easy, simple parameters. And if you just simply ask people, for example, if you're dealing with somebody, you can just start asking them questions concerning what they believe, and they will very quickly expose to you where they're at in terms of their broad thinking. So let's talk about worldviews. Number one, let me describe what worldviews are, and then we will go from there. First of all, they're a set of beliefs about the most important elements of our existence. We have to operate by assuming certain things. 
and I'll say this again later, but everyone has a worldview. Everyone. Most people are unaware. Most people don't really think about what they really, really believe. In other words, deep down, what do I really, really consider valuable? What do I believe concerning truth? What do I think in terms of the most important things? So let's take a look at a couple of quotes here. Nash, R.H. Nash says, A worldview is a conceptual system by which we consciously or unconsciously, and most people unconsciously, and he goes on, place or fit everything we believe and by which we interpret and judge reality. That's a good statement of what a worldview is. I'll let you copy that. So it's a conceptual system by which we consciously or unconsciously place or fit everything we believe, and notice everything we believe, and by which we interpret and judge reality. And it's basically how do we view everything around us? How do we view people? How do we view politics? How do we view everything around us? And what we want to do is we want to consciously begin to think in terms of these major issues, major questions of all of life. Everyone, at least unconsciously, in in fact, we don't think about it. We just make decisions based on what we really, really deep down believe. And what we really believe deep down, that is our perception of reality. That is our what we would describe as our world view. So, worldviews, another way of putting it, this is kind of my summary, how we view the world around you and how you live life as a result. So, what people do and how they live is a product of how they view the world. And they're usually unconscious of what they assume and what they really deep down believe. And we're going to contrast different worldviews. So how you view the world around you and how you live life as a result. So bottom line, your worldview is going to determine how you live. So it's very important. It's going to touch how you raise children, how you view husbands, how you vote, you know, how you think in terms of uh, truth, what you do in science. It's going to have an impact. Your worldview will determine how you live. So that's one of the reasons it is so important. A worldview functions as an interpretive conceptual scheme to explain why we see the world as we do. That's another quote by Nash. In fact, it's an extension of that other quote. Worldviews, they answer the the most important questions of life. I forgot to give you these. Let me give you some of them. First of all, it answers the question, is there God? Is there a God and what is he like? Number two, what is, what is reality? What is real? What is really real? Another question it answers is, what is the nature of the universe? What's the universe all about? What's it like? Fourthly, what is a human being? What is a human being all about? What am I all about? Who am I? Your worldview determines how you view humanity. Are humans merely evolving animals? That's the prevailing worldview of our culture. Is that true? Worldview also answers the question, why are we here? Why are we here? In other words, is there purpose? 
What's the secular viewpoint in terms of the purpose of all things? No purpose. No purpose. Totally contrary to what the biblical worldview is all about. Now the question, if there is a God, what? who's in charge? Is he really in charge? Doesn't look like it if you look out into the world. Another question. Well, I asked ask that one. What is the meaning and purpose of life? Uh, related to that, what is the meaning of human history? Look in your UNM World History book for a purpose of world history. What do you think you're going to find? Nothing. <laughs> exactly. Uh, we'll talk some more about that. What we're going to present here is there's a plan. There's a design. History is heading somewhere. And things are happening not randomly, but there is someone behind the orchestrating and the working of this plan. That's a biblical worldview. That's different. Secular worldview sees no purpose in history as well. So we'll answer that question. Another question. Why is it possible to know anything? This deals with knowledge. How do you know things? How do you know what is true? What is true? How do you evaluate what is true? Again, we're totally different from secular humanism. Another question. Is there a difference between right and wrong? This gets into the area of evaluating uh, decisions and lifestyles and things that we do. We call that ethics. How do we know what is right and what is wrong? If there is such a thing as right and wrong. And what is the secular worldview in terms of right and wrong? Relative. Very good. So you already understand all these things. All right. We'll let you teach the course. Exactly. That's the way it's put. Very good. And then kind of another question, what happens after death? And what's the secularist viewpoint on it? Nothing. Tree food or fertilizers. Yep. All we do is fertilize trees or plant life. So those are some of the fundamental questions. Now, I like to try, at least, I don't know how successful I am, but I try to simplify things. Sometimes I make them more complex. (laughs) But my desire is to simplify some things, so I'm going to try and chart on one little chart here this whole idea of worldviews, and basically you can put all worldviews into these categories. I think there are basically two worldviews. Very good. Very good. Biblical and unbiblical. Or we could say a worldview that is based on the Bible or Scripture. That would be a biblical worldview. Very few in our culture, and I include even born-again Christians, very few Christians even today in the church today have a biblical worldview because they haven't thought about it. They haven't renewed their minds. They haven't run things through the grid of Scripture to see what is right and and what is wrong with, with thinking. So two basic worldviews, a biblical worldview and a worldview that does not believe the Bible. I call that a worldview of unbelief. Two worldviews, a biblical and a worldview of unbelief, or an unbiblical worldview. That's as simple as you can get. Everything else is unbiblical, in other words. Everything apart from a biblical worldview is not reality, even. Okay? So let's break this one down. There are two types of unbelief. Two extremes, if you will, two ends of the spectrum. 
One end I would classify as atheistic unbelief, the worldview that basically denies the existence of God to some extent. Secular humanism operates from an atheistic worldview. In other words, it eliminates God. I've already said that our culture is predominantly secular humanism in terms of worldview. Public schools, universities, gave you some examples even how it's touched the Supreme Court, even government, all of the areas. Basically, people are operating, science even, people coming from a secular worldview. We want to sort these things out and try to view things from the lens of Scripture. There's the other end of the spectrum. There's the atheistic, which the main example, secular humanism. There's also a spiritual form, but I put it as unbelief because it at least, or at a minimum, distorts the biblical worldview. So there's a spiritual and there's an anti-theistic. So we can divide it into two parts. Now, you can see some others, and these are just examples in terms of the atheistic, Marxism begins with an atheistic viewpoint, and it's secular humanism, but it's secular humanism applied primarily to society and to government. So it's just a subset of secular humanism. Does that make it simple? There's also another branch which is becoming more popular today. We call that postmodernism. It's just another deviation of secular humanism. But both of these are part of what we might describe more broadly a worldview of unbelief. Unbelief in the, the teachings of the Bible. So also there are two major areas, and there's other kind of minor areas, but the New Age is spiritual. It has a spiritual emphasis, but it's a distortion of what the Bible teaches. And it's actually contrary to what the Bible teaches. And we'll look at what areas are distorted in a moment here. So the New Age, and by the way, everything starts with God. That's the first thing, first question. That's the first issue. And we'll look at that in a moment. The God of the New Age is pantheism. So they have a spiritual aspect. But it's not the God of the Bible. It's a pantheistic God. And I've already said, New Age is, is very huge in our culture. Can anyone guess what the next spiritual one that is huge also, or becoming huge in our culture, which is also a distortion of a biblical worldview? It shares some elements of a biblical worldview, but distorts them, and thus is in this category of unbelief. Some elements of the church, yeah, you could include that, but uh, I'm thinking of another one here. I've mentioned it already. Thoughts? What's the fastest... Islam? Very good, very good. Islam. is fastest growing religion today in the world. And it's becoming more prominent every day. You could even look at Islam as a self-contained worldview. It has political elements, it has social elements, and certainly spiritual elements. So it has all of the elements of a worldview. It has a whole knowledge base, has a view of mankind... Islam. So, these are major areas attacking the truth today. Remember, I started off with some of these. These are all individual worldviews. They're related. 
the unbelieving ones, Marxism, postmodernism, they would be atheistic. A spiritual element, New Age and Islam, but all of these are an unbelief worldview in terms of scripture and what the Bible teaches. So there's a distinct biblical worldview. We will spend a lot of time developing this biblical worldview, and then you will see very easily and very quickly anything that departs from that. And some of them we will call out. So that's a description of worldviews and what they are like. Let's briefly touch on why they are important. And first of all, they're important, number one, because everyone has a worldview, whether they know it or not. Most people just have not thought about it and have not thought through what their worldview is. And some people have a combination and a mixture of different elements of different worldviews. But everyone has a worldview. I've also said on some occasions, obviously not in this course, but everyone has a theology. Even the atheist has a theology. It's a belief that there is no God, but that is a view concerning who God is. So also, all have a worldview. And I hinted that it's also important because it determines how we respond to the world or how we live. It is the basis of all our decisions. It's the basis of all our actions. So this course will help you to think through what is a proper way of thinking. And from that proper way of thinking, now I can orient what I do and how I live. Number three, it's important because it enables us to understand others. It'll help us to understand where other people are coming from, whether they're believers or unbelievers. And if they have a distorted biblical view, it'll help us to identify areas where we might start to give them a more biblical worldview. So it'll help us to minister to fellow believers, and particularly newer believers that come out of the culture, A new believer that comes to Jesus Christ, his mind is still polluted with the thinking and the worldview from where he came. Whether he came out of Islam or whether he came out of secular humanism, his mind still has not been renewed. And if you understand where where people are coming from, now you can help them to renew their thinking. So number three, it enables us to understand others, and therefore to be able to help them. So if we can understand their worldview, where their thinking is, where they're coming from, now we can begin to find scriptures that will help them in uh, their growth as individuals. The reason many people reject Christianity is they really don't understand it. They don't know what it's all about. And, And more and more so today, because we do not have a biblical worldview to help people understand So sometimes in the culture we live in, we have to do a little bit of pre-evangelism, if you will, or some work to prepare people so that they can even understand the gospel. The gospel is a foreign concept to them because they don't understand what mankind is all about. They don't have a clue concerning who God is. They don't have a biblical framework. Our country has departed from that biblical framework. Uh, another reason, a fourth reason why it's important is one's worldview is going to determine one's destiny. In other words, where one's going to end up in terms of e- eternity. It's going to determine one's destiny. 
Obviously, the unbelieving worldview, the broad category of the unbelieving worldview, those people are going to end up very disappointed when they have to stand before the judge of the universe. And that's why we want to help people to overcome that and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. So a worldview, the way you view things, ultimately is going to end up into determining where you end up. So just touching on its importance, what are the elements of a worldview? And these are the areas that you want to become very, very familiar in terms of the scripture and then work out and work out some of the details of it. And we will be looking at a lot of the details of a biblical worldview. I'm going to add to these, but this is this is the starting point. So these are the elements. Number one starts with a person's view of God. And that's where you want to start asking people questions. And very simply, you might just ask them, what do you think God is like? Very simple question. Let them describe. Let them talk. Let them explain. That will give you a lot of insight as to where they're at and what, what their worldview is. It's going to reveal a lot. Some may say, well, I don't even believe that he exists. That's an atheist. Some say, uh, I don't know. I just don't think about it much. Well, it's kind of agnostic, I guess. But he, it's not that important. So in reality, he's living as if God does not exist. So the main elements deals with theology, and theology specifically, theos. What's theos in Greek? That's right. She knows. <laughs> theos in Greek is... God, Lagos, or Aloji Lagos, John 1, the word, word, or knowledge, or study of, or... So theology in general starts with God, so theology in general is the study of who God is. So a worldview, I'm just giving you categories here, a worldview involves the basic of theology, who God is. Everybody has a concept of God. Romans 1 even tells us God has revealed himself to every man and woman, every person. God has revealed himself. Everyone has some revelation of God. Romans 1 also tells us, verse 18, that our tendency because of sin is we suppress that. In other words, we don't want to face that God, so we suppress that knowledge. The atheist is just someone who has suppressed that knowledge so far that he has deceived and convinced himself that God does not exist. But deep down, he knows that he does. Romans 1, 18 through 20. So it starts with God. And by the way, I'm going to give you, that's the ultimate foundation of everything else. So when we develop our worldview and we go through each of these passages, I'm going to begin every one of them with some aspect of who God is. Because that determines everything. That's the starting point. This is the most important aspect in terms of what worldview is all about. Now, this is another place where I go a little bit beyond what Charlie Clough has done. I've added this aspect because I think this is so foundational. Ultimate realities. Number two. What is ultimate reality? What is the universe all about? What's included in the universe? We call that metaphysics. In other words, it's just a category. In other words, ultimate reality. What are things really like? So when it comes to metaphysics and when it comes to ultimate reality, this deals with what is real 
And there's different views on it, obviously. And there's a biblical view. This is where creation comes in. This is where God as creator comes in. And what this tells us, and I'll give you some details on the biblical worldview, but basically when we talk about reality, are there two levels or is there just one level of ultimate reality? The secular humanist says there's only one level. In other words, the material realm is all there is. A lot of people believe in secular humanism. In fact, the majority of people in the culture. So most people are coming from that direction. There's no life after death. There's nothing beyond what you can see and what science can test. That's that unbelieving worldview. Well, we believe that there's a reality beyond the physical. We believe in a two-level reality. There's a spiritual realm and there's a material realm. And God is in that spiritual realm. And he's a creator of the material realm and there's a relationship between the two. That's the biblical world. So number three on the elements, what is your view concerning knowing, knowledge, Philosophers and theologians call that epistemology. That's just the study of knowledge. The study of how do we know? And what do we know in terms of what is real? whole area of knowledge. And this comes into play because in terms of the secular humanists, what's the source of knowledge for him? Man's thinking. Man's thoughts. And for the believer, what's the source of knowledge? Real knowledge. Revelation, or God himself, what God has revealed. Very good. A fourth area is ethics. This is morality, or how you live, how you live out what you believe. This gets into the rights and wrongs. And we want to include humankind or mankind. We can call that anthropology. There's an unbelieving anthropology or a study of what man is all about. And there's a biblical view of mankind. So these are the basic areas that make up a worldview. And everybody has a view. Everybody has a view of God. Everybody has a view of what is real and what is ultimate reality. So everybody has a metaphysics. Everybody almost assumes knowledge in one way or another in terms of where it comes from and what it's like. And everybody has an ethic. An abortionist has an ethic. To him, life is not valuable. Okay? That's morality. That's ethics. And everyone has a view of what mankind is all about. And then the last one is destiny. We can call that eschatology. How things end. Where things are headed. What happens after life. Or after death, I should say. So those are your major elements. Theology, metaphysics, epistemology, morality, anthropology, eschatology, or more understandable, what's God all about, what is ultimate reality all about, what is knowledge all about, what is ethics all about, what is mankind all about, and what is destiny. If you can come up with questions to each of these, you can figure out where somebody's at and where their worldview is. In fact, if you just start with the first one, you're going to have a basic idea of where people are coming from. And they're, keep in mind, they're either coming from a biblical view or they're coming from an unbelief view. The unbelieving worldview, we've, we've already given it to you in simple form here. In terms of God, it's either atheistic or it's distorted. In other words, the spiritual, like Islam or New Age, the God that they believe in is a distorted God. It's not the God of the Bible. And the atheistic worldview, obviously, uh, denial of the existence of God. Their ultimate reality, generally, 
the secular humanist believes that only the natural realm exists. Another word for that is materialism. Philosophy of materialism. The New Ager believes everything is spirit. So that's a distortion. They believe in a spiritual, but everything is spiritual. Everything, God is everything, and everything is God. It's New Age. So that's the unbelieving worldview. So it's a distortion. In terms of knowledge, we already mentioned, comes from man's reason. That's where knowledge comes from, and that's how you evaluate it. That's how you look at it from man. That's the only source. If there's nothing outside, if there's no God, then the only place of knowledge can come from is reason. Ethics, you've already said, everything is relative. Everything's relative. What's right for you may not be right for me, and what's right for me you may disagree with, but that's because yours is wrong. (laughs) And I absolutely believe yours is wrong, (laughs) even though everything's relative. Concerning humankind or mankind, basic goodness is generally both the atheistic and even the spiritual. So it's a distorted view of mankind. And in terms of destiny, it varies depending on the worldview. That's the unbelieving world. Let's devote some time looking at a biblical worldview. And this will be greatly expanded as we work through, through the course and a lot more detail, and we'll look at all of these different aspects and areas. But in looking at the biblical worldview, number one, the first element is God himself. What is the view of God himself? And we said that every worldview deviates from the biblical worldview, so this is a good starting point, because if you get a feel for where people are in terms of their understanding of who God is, you can identify immediately whether it's biblical or non-biblical or how far they deviate. And if you remember, I, I categorized the unbelieving worldview into two categories. One that is atheistic, which denies God altogether, and the second aspect or division of the unbelieving I called a spiritual worldview on the other end of the spectrum. In other words, those worldviews that believe in a God of some sort. And one of them would be pantheism, which is popular today. Everything is God, God is everything. But those are deviations from what the Bible teaches and in some cases distortions. Well, the biblical worldview starts with the God of the Bible and... We're going to expand that, but very simply, we could say the God of the Bible, first of all, is personal. He's real. He's personal. And very, very important, he's creator, which basically goes against most of the other worldviews. The exception might be Islam, but even Islam has a distorted view in terms of God as creator. And this is very important. In fact, this separates the biblical worldview from almost all the other worldviews. And one of the points that we'll make is God as creator is separate and distinct from the creation. That's very important. That's unique to the Bible. The only other thought area might be Islam. But almost every other, or virtually every other view, sees a continuity of being. And if you evaluate, for example, the gods of the Bible the Egyptian gods, Babylonian gods, they're nothing more than supermen. And they have 
all of the attributes of man rather than man being created in the image of God. And there's just one level, essentially. So God as creator is very important, and it's only the biblical worldview that sees God as Trinitarian. Trinitarian, that's very, very important. Even Islam and every other worldview basically denies the Trinity, even those that are spiritual and those that are somewhat distortions of the biblical worldview on the spiritual end. So God is personal, he's creator, and Trinity, and I'll expand this when we get to Genesis 1, because Genesis 1 starts us right off and gives us all kinds of insight into the God of the Bible. So we'll come back to that. Secondly, the second element is what is ultimate reality? In other words, what is real? What is reality all about? What is it composed of? What is the universe like? Now, number one deals with what was the categories that we put that in? God would be theology. Number two, what is ultimate reality? That deals with metaphysics, exactly. So the second category deals with metaphysics. And what do you perceive to be the ultimate in terms of the universe? And we said the unbelieving view generally, the atheistic, is materialistic, and there's only one level. All that you see in the universe is all that exists. That's the secular, humanist, atheistic worldview. On the other end of the spectrum would be uh, New Age, which basically sees ultimate reality is everything is spiritual. And material is illusion from the perspective of the Eastern mind and the Eastern thought and New Age as well. But ultimate reality, in terms of the biblical, there is a distinct spiritual realm that is different and separate from the material realm. So we see a material realm and a spiritual realm. And both are just as real as the other. And we're going to encounter that everywhere we look at Scripture. speaks in terms of a spiritual realm. So there are creatures that live in the spiritual realm. And God particularly lives in the spiritual realm. But God, we'll talk about his nature, is also imminent in that he deals and interacts with the creation, though he is separate and distinct from the creation. So again, the creator-creation distinction, and Charlie likes to make a big point of that, and rightfully so, There's a distinction between the creator and that that exists in the spiritual realm and that that he has created, which is the material realm. Creator-creation distinction. That's the biblical worldview. The third element deals with knowledge. And how did we classify that? What category did we put that in? Epistemology is the study of knowledge. How do we know what knowledge is real? What is knowledge like? This is all in the area of epistemology. And the biblical worldview is distinct in that we believe that all knowledge and ultimate knowledge and real knowledge, absolute knowledge, must come from an absolute source. So the source of knowledge ultimately is God himself. We believe that truth is objective. In other words, it can be looked at, observed, and evaluated. This is different. Because in general, the culture that we live in, and particularly postmodernism, 
denies actually even the existence of objective truth. Denies the existence of objective truth. And they will say it absolutely. <laughs> Which is the weakness of their viewpoint. The biblical worldview, we believe that there is objective truth, but absolute truth comes through revelation. And even truth that man attempts to understand has to come from revelation, otherwise it's distorted. The unbelieving world sees knowledge as relative, not absolute. It's only the biblical worldview that sees knowledge as objective, and we depend on revelation, God revealing himself. We're going to talk a lot about that later as well. I'm going to expand all of these. All of these, we'll, we'll, we'll see these over and over and over. I just want to give you kind of a contrast with the unbelieving worldview that we, we did before. This leads to ethics. What was the category we put that under? Ethics is dealing with morality. So these are, these are the most important areas of thinking, the most important areas of thought, most important areas of ideas. And... Morality deals with how you live, what is right, what is wrong, those things that determine choices, what, what is the basis of choices, those sort of things. And again, the ethics of the culture and we live in is everything is relative. What's right for you may not be right for me. What's right for me probably may not be right for you. Don't impose your morality on me, those sort of thinking. That's the current idea of secular humanism. The biblical worldview says, no, there are ethics that are unchanging. We call them absolutes. There are absolutes. There are definitive rights and wrongs. There are some things that are evil and some things that are good. That's different. That's, that's not the same as secular humanism. So we believe in absolutes. And that there are standards, unchanging standards. And again, and by the way, all of these are related to God, so this is why a person's view of God affects everything else. Ultimate reality, God is separate from what you can observe. In terms of knowledge, it all comes from God. And in terms of ethics, the ethic has to come from God. He is the standard. He is the standard. And by the way... Who is the way, the what? Truth and the life? Jesus Christ. So ultimately, Jesus is truth. Not only is he the source of truth, but he is truth. And ultimate truth is an embodiment of God himself. The Father is truth as well. We'll see that later on. So ethics, the standards are God himself. And that's where we get absolutes. And I think you're beginning to see that our worldview has substance to it. It has a lot of depth to it. And is the best place to put our confidence in. The fifth area is what is, what is man-like or humankind? What category did we put that one under? Anthropology. And Immediately, if you think of anthropology, you probably think of UNM's Department of Anthropology. And if you go study anthropology over there, very, very different. In fact, the whole area is a totally different area of study. 
But in reality, the study of anthropology is the study of man. Not just the bone remains of man, that's what the Department of Anthropology studies, and the cultures and things related to that. But goes down to the basics of who is man, what is man all about, humankind. And there's two aspects, and we'll develop this further when we get to Genesis 1, and then even further when we get to Genesis 3. But to begin with, man is created in the image of God. So it's all related to God again. Very important concept. That's not the understanding of the world in which we live in. That's not any of the worldviews. Man created in the image of God. So he has dignity. But he also has relationship with that God. Created in the image of God implies relationship with that God and many other implications. We'll draw some of those out. But something happened in the history of mankind and that event is just as historical as any other historical event. Just as historical as Abraham Lincoln or the founding of America or whatever. Chapter 3 of the book of Genesis, man has fallen, and that's an important aspect. Every other worldview distorts who man is and therefore does not truly understand man. So all of secular psychology basically is a distortion. Psychology attempts to understand man's psyche or man's mentality or whatever you want to call it. But they have a distorted view because they don't understand the image of God and they don't have, they have a distorted view of the fallen nature of man. Does that make sense? So that's a biblical worldview. And when we speak of man, not only in the image of God, but as a fallen creature, man is responsible to God and is called upon to measure up to the standards in the way that he lives, the absolutes. And there's a problem there. We don't have the capacity to be able to do that. So we need a biblical worldview to solve the whole problem of man. And it's only the Bible that gives us solutions. So that's number five. Actually, there's six elements. The last one here deals with destiny. And what area does that deal with? What category? Eschatology. So if you want the the essence of a worldview, look at its theology, look at its metaphysics, look at its epistemology, look at its morality, look at its anthropology, and look at its eschatology. And eschatology is nothing more than the things that happen at the end. And in terms of man, what is man's destiny? Bible is clear, there's a real heaven, there's a real hell, although the Bible doesn't use the word hell. What word does the Bible use? Mm, that's not quite, no, Sheol is a temporary place. Yeah, lake of fire, very good. Yeah, you had to go through the whole Bible to get that one. You get to that one at the end of the New Testament. But anyway, uh, there's a real lake of fire, a real place of eternal destiny for creatures that have rejected the one true God. And there is a place of fellowship with that one true God that the Bible describes using the word heaven sometimes. The word heaven is used in other ways as well. So that's the biblical worldview. Make sense? Mark?
Well, it is. It would fall under this category here. There is a spiritual realm. I did touch on it. I mentioned that there are creatures in that realm. Yeah. Yeah, in fact, you can you can put every category of theology into one of these boxes, and some of them would overlap even some of the others. Okay? Another thing about destiny here, in terms of the, the, the universe and creation, God is going to deal with it as well. There's a destiny for the natural realm. And the word, what, what word would you use in terms of the biblical worldview? What's God going to do with the created realm? Yeah, but what's its destiny? What's the outcome? Okay. Recreate or restore. Restoration. So there's going to be a restoration. And we're going to see some of that in this course as well. So it doesn't deal only with creatures. It deals with all of the created realm. There's going to be a restoration. So those are worldviews. Apparently there's a worldview academy that puts its uh, ads in uh, World Magazine here. And they have kind of clever little ads. This one says, would you rather your daughter subscribe to the belief du jour? In other words, what's the most popular thinking of the day or the most common worldview, basically? And at the bottom it says, or own timeless truths. I think this school apparently deals with worldviews, and we're going to spend a lot of time on worldviews.